Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, COVID-19 update, keeping employees safe while reducing liability. Presented by J.J. Keller. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor of Safety and Health Magazine. I will moderate today's presentation. First, we'd like to thank you all for joining us. And on behalf of the National Safety Council, as employees are currently working away from the office, we hope that you, your loved ones, and all the people in your lives are remaining safe and healthy wherever they are. We'll start the presentation in a couple minutes, but first there are some housekeeping items. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speakers and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the Council or the magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a question and answer session with our speakers. To ask a question, click the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen, type your question, and click the send button. Please feel free to ask your question at any time during this presentation. You do not have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but we might not get to every question. The good news is that any unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. After this presentation, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, and I'll tell you more about that a little later. This webcast will be archived so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our webcasts, please go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com events, or you can receive a link in a post-event email. With that, let's introduce our, our speakers. With us today is Dolly Claybo, editor at JJ Keller since 1996. A member of the Human Resources content team, Dolly addresses topics such as the Family and Medical Leave Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and federal law restricting the release of medical information. She has presented a variety of HR-related events, and her work has been published in books and periodicals. Also joining us is Travis Roden, an editor at J.J. Keller since 1997. Among Travis's specialties are safety management and auditing. Before his current job, Travis was the safety manager for a Midwest-based manufacturer of buses and heavy-duty tru heavy trucks. Again, we'd like to thank you all for tuning into this presentation. Travis, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Actually, this is Dolly and I think I will start it off. Thank you all for joining us today. Well, and you're likely all really, really tired of hearing and learning about changes, all the changes that have occurred and that continue to occur related to the virus, the coronavirus. Unfortunately, Think about it, the virus is like an alien creature that landed on Earth and it did not come with instructions. So we need to continue to learn more and more details about it. So just when you think you have all the guidance related to it, you all understand it all, it's gonna change because we learned something new. Therefore, this presentation is designed to provide you with what we know now in relation to keeping your employees safe and your company out of trouble in the courts. Now we know that safety is always of top concern, but COVID-19 obviously presented some very unique challenges. Unfortunately, some of those controls are the same as the controls we've been using all along for the general public. But still, it's a complicated issue with evolving guidance from OSHA and other worker safety agencies. So now, Travis is gonna get us started by covering the OSHA-related issues. Thank you, Dolly. And thank you uh, for everyone joining us today. So um, early in the pandemic, OSHA was scrambling as everyone was, um, I think uh, quite a bit. So there wasn't a whole lot of guidance coming out of that agency. And really, if you think about it early on, uh, the CDC wasn't even recommending uh, face coverings for the general public. So naturally, OSHA was not recommending those either. Um, OSHA was really primarily focused early on on healthcare workers, uh, particularly respiratory protection and uh, a real concern with availability of personal protective equipment. But as the months have passed and businesses in many locations have gotten back to work in person, OSHA has provided some guidance and interpretations, and they have taken enforcement action. Now, as you see there on the first bulleted uh, bullet on your slide, 
there still is no federal OSHA standard that specifically covers COVID-19. But there are a few that the agency uses, and we'll talk about those later. Um, but aside from a standard, OSHA has been very active with guidance documents, and that's primarily what we're going to cover over the next few slides, really how OSHA is interpreting issues related to face coverings, temperature checks, respirator shortages, and very importantly, recording and reporting cases of COVID-19. Um, and we'll also touch on how the agency is enforcing the standards that it currently has. Now, even though federal OSHA has not taken regulatory action, four state OSHAs have. And the first of those states was Virginia, and they launched their own uh, specific COVID-19 standard. Uh, and that was followed up by Michigan, California, and Oregon. So all four of those states who have their own state OSHA plan now have enforceable standards addressing COVID-19. So if you have operations in those states, certainly you'll want to take a look at the requirements. They generally um, require a written COVID-19 control plan, or many of them refer to it as an infectious control plan, um, as well as training and other measures. And, you know, there are some nuances within each of those four state programs, but by and large, the main major topics guidance are, are consistent with those coming from the CDC um, and federal, federal OSHA. So it's not necessarily that these states are, you know, requiring some, you know, procedures or to implement controls that are not currently being used. But uh, basically what they've done is they've, they've codified, codified things. So obviously that makes enforcement and issuing citations uh, much easier. Uh, with federal OSHA, you know, a harder case has to be made to get citations to stick because there isn't a specific standard uh, for the most part. But OSHA has taken some enforcement action and uh, early on it was really quiet. So what we're seeing now um, are actually, we're, st we're starting to see violations now coming from inspections that were started near the beginning of the pandemic. Um, if you think about it, OSHA has six months from the time of spotting a violation to issue those citations. So any inspection, let's say conducted in, you know, April of last year um, may not have resulted in violations until October or November of last year. Um, and you have to remember these cases were really complex for OSHA because there was not a standard and because there was so much that was evolving and continues to evolve with what we know about the virus. You know, if you, uh, if you take, for example, if early on, if OSHA tried to cite an employer for not enforcing face coverings in the workplace, it, it would have been a hard sell because like we mentioned earlier, uh, early on, the CDC didn't even recommend that. So things have changed quite a bit uh, as we've gone along and OSHA has had to adjust to that. But they are issuing citations um, really across all industries. I mean, maybe the majority are in healthcare operations, but we've seen, um, We've seen violations in retail, manufacturing, food processing, um, pretty much across the board. And they've issued those primarily under the general duty clause of the OSHA Act or various PPE standards, in particular, uh, respiratory protection standard. Um, many of these citations have been contested by, by the employer. Uh, so we'll have to see how the courts rule, you know, how far how far were, were employers expected to go with a virus that, that was evolving? You know, it'll be an easier sell now for OSHA, certainly than it was for those earlier, uh, earlier violations that they, that they noted. So basically from the OSHA standpoint, what they've done is broken down workplaces into four categories based on risk. If you're a low risk employer, like 
let's say an office setting, then you'll only be expected to implement simple controls, much, much like those that would be for the general public, social distancing, uh, wearing a face mask, cleaning, uh, that sort of thing, sanitation. But as we go into medium risk, high risk, and certainly extremely high risk, uh, the controls that, that will be expected will be much more involved because the risk is higher, meaning there's a greater probability uh, of, it, of exposure. And you can kind of look at that and kind of give the, the chart on the screen there, it gives you a little bit uh, of an idea of what we're talking about. Most of workplaces are gonna fall into lower or medium risk. Um, and then the top, the two top tiers, high and very high, for the most part, are healthcare um, operations. So that's sort of kind of the general overview of the OSHA stance. And now what we'll do is look at some specific issues. And I think uh, no topic is more representative of this pandemic than maybe the use of, of face coverings. They've become a part of most people's routine uh, when going in public or to work, um, but they do raise a few, a few questions and a few issues. First, OSHA does not consider them to be personal protective equipment. And that is even though the CDC now says that they do offer some protection to the wearer. Um, and that, again, that's one of those things where what we know the virus, it's, it's evolving. If you'll remember, it wasn't that long ago where the CDC and OSHA were saying, you know, you wear the face coverings uh, not to protect you um, or not to protect me, but to protect you. So now they're kind of saying, yeah, but it does offer some protection to the wearer as well. That being said, OSHA still says there's not enough evidence to classify them as personal protective equipment. So technically that means the employer does not have to pay for them. Um, but certainly if you want to be in compliance with the guidance documents that OSHA has issued, um, you know, I think it's in, your, it's, it's in a company's best interest to either provide them or at the least ensure um, that workers are wearing them and probably a good idea to have a few, a few, um, spares on hand just in case you know a worker does not bring their own or forgets their own, uh, that sort of thing. Now to that end, obviously in some workplaces, wearing these coverings or masks can be cumbersome due to heat or humidity. So OSHA says there are things you can do, like for example, allowing workers to remove them when they're in a remote location away from other workers. Additionally, um, you know, make sure that they don't pose any hazards. If they do, you have to look at some, some other options. And importantly, remember, cloth face coverings are not a substitute for any required respiratory protection. So if you have workers who are exposed to, let's say, silica dust and need to wear a respirator because of that, a cloth face covering uh, certainly will not work. Uh, up next, social distancing. Uh, we've all certainly heard this term over the uh, last few months. From the OSHA standpoint, basically in line with the CDC guidance, which advises at least six feet. But we all know that in many workplaces, there's a need to be closer in some cases. So in those cases, OSHA encourages engineering controls. And by that, we mean uh, things like uh, plastic barriers are maybe the most common that you see either uh, in retail operations to protect the public and the cashiers, um, as well as, you know, manufacturing uh, food processing lines where you can put the, uh, the plastic uh, in, between, in between workers who have to stand really close together and they act sort of as a barrier. And let's, let's also remember that the CDC is now supporting the notion that particles that cause COVID-19 may linger in the air for a prolonged period of time. Now, this is not thought to be the main way the virus spreads, but it is recognized as a possibility. So particularly if you have workers in enclosed spaces that don't have a lot of ventilation, 
you know, this could be an issue. Uh, in those cases, more than six feet is probably going to be a good idea. And certainly if you can increase your air exchanges, um, that, would, that would definitely be better. Uh, but you know, how far is far enough? Um, I don't think really anyone can say across the board, you know, that if you separate workers by 15 feet, then, you know, you're gonna be good. Uh, the risk obviously is low for this type of transmission, uh, but depending on airflow, as well as length of exposure, um, there is a risk. Now, respirator shortages have been a real issue during the pandemic. So OSHA has made some allowances uh, to preserve the supply, primarily to preserve that supply for healthcare workers. So if employers can demonstrate um, reasonable efforts to comply with the respiratory standard, um, and or the equivalent protection um, of other health standards that OSHA has said they will exercise enforcement discretion. And if you want more information on that, there's an April 8, 2020 memorandum that kind of lays that out. Um, but basically, you know, you can't just say, well, we can't find an N95 anymore, so we're just going to let workers uh, do their silica generating work anyway. Um, you have to look at whether other dust masks are available or even respirators with a higher protective qualities, or you have to look at engineering controls. So in other words, it's not a blanket waiver from respiratory protection, but OSHA does recognize that in some cases, uh, deviations from the norm will have to be made. An example of that uh, to conserve uh, supplies of N95s OSHA says that annual fit testing can be delayed. So you don't wanna use up all your respirators just doing the annual fit test. Now, in some instances, OSHA is allowing non-NIOSH approved respirators if they are approved by other country standards boards. Again, this is generally a last resort sort of thing, um, not what you wanna to turn to first. Uh, the goal remains really you know, you have to protect workers from respiratory hazards. If you can't use your traditional PPE, then there are some other options that aren't typically available, uh, but you need to make certain you've made a good faith effort before going to a lower tiered control. And even then the worker still has to be provided uh, with adequate protection. So let's uh, take a quick look at uh, temperature checks and screenings. This has raised a couple of interesting questions. Um, from the OSHA perspective, they are allowed and in a lot of ways encouraged, but if an employer implements health screening or temperature checks, and importantly here, chooses to create records of this information. So in other words, if you have um, a screening questionnaire that you, that you fill out or have workers fill out every time, um, they, before they enter the workplace, those records might qualify as medical records under OSHA's 1910-1020 standard, which is the standard for access to employee exposure and medical records. And if that's the case, the employer would then be required to retain those records for the duration of each worker's employment plus 30 years. Um, but the good thing about this, OSHA has, um, come out with a, a guidance document, and you can see there the guidance on return to work um, that has said, this is only the case if those records are made and kept by a healthcare professional. So that's the qualifier that is currently in place is that if those records are made or kept by a healthcare professional, then they qualify as medical records and you have to keep them for the 30 plus years. Uh, if not, then technically you do not. Uh, just a few other points as far as the OSHA side of this. Obviously, many third-party providers were not going to do things like uh, hearing testing or uh, spirometry because of fears of exposure to the virus, or else they needed to conserve supplies. And in some cases, it, you know, it wasn't even an option due to lockdowns. So what happens if you miss the due date because Let's say you could not get your annual hearing tests um, performed. 
So again, another memorandum you'll want to check out, April 16th, 2020. OSHA said they'll take this into consideration when they conduct an inspection. And generally, if a good faith effort is made and you really could not complete the training or evaluation on time, uh, and you tried to put in other controls, you'll be okay. But you'll want to take a look at that April uh, memo just for the specifics of it. Um, and if you are looking for training solutions for your organization, uh, JJ Keller Training uh, can help. You can access hundreds of online courses and streaming video training across multiple industries 24-7. Uh, With our user-friendly options, uh, training uh, has never been easier, which is key. So if you'd like more information about JJ Keller's training, use the poll on your screen to select your interests. Each JJ Keller training program is carefully built by our experienced adult learning specialists and reviewed by our subject matter experts to be up-to-date, engaging, and effective. And since JJ Keller Training is sponsoring today's event, anyone interested in learning more about our training solutions will also receive a complimentary white paper, Return to Work, Are You Prepared When COVID-19 Tags Along? Okay, just a few last notes here from the OSHA side of things. HAZCOM or hazard communication is, is really one that we don't think a lot about, but it actually can come into play. You know, everyone is cleaning and sanitizing everything now, it seems. So just to be sure that you're using safe chemicals as well as those that actually will do the job, uh, a key thing is to use EPA approved uh, chemicals for COVID-19. And if your workers are using chemicals they have not been trained on, uh, particularly if they're using them in a way that would be beyond normal household use, then you need to include them in your HAZCOM program, which means you would need to train them uh, on the hazards of those chemicals. And you wanna make sure you have a safety data sheet um, available to them as well. It's easy to overlook this given the way the pandemic has, has changed things. So lastly, from the OSHA standpoint, uh, let's look at recording and reporting cases of COVID-19. I saved this for last because it's, it's been up and down with OSHA as to how and what employers must do. And it certainly, even now, is a little, is a little bit gray. But we'll do our best to give you the insight we've gotten from OSHA on what's been published as well as what we've gotten by talking to them um, in person. First, for recording, so this is recording it on your, on your OSHA logs, OSHA does require work-related cases of COVID-19 to be recorded if they meet three criteria. The first of which, uh, they have to be confirmed by a CDC test. So that's one part of it. It has to be a confirmed case and it has to be work-related. And then the last part, it would have to result in uh, lost time, medical treatment beyond first aid or other criteria. And usually it will at least involve lost time uh, due to quarantining or isolation. So the question, of course, in all of that, what is work related? How do you know when a case was transmitted in the workplace versus, you know, community spread? It's a lot easier, obviously, in healthcare operations than it is, say, in a you know, a manufacturing facility. So OSHA does say that employers do not have to perform detailed contact tracing, but they should make a good faith look to see if it's more likely than not that transmission occurred in the workplace. So as an example, let's say six workers in a manufacturing facility from one area all contract uh, COVID-19 there's a good chance at least five of those cases were transmitted in the workplace. We don't know where the original one originated, but pretty good chance, unless you have evidence to the contrary, 
Um, you know, for example, that they're all six of those people are known to play basketball together uh, outside of work or something like that, um, or maybe all from the same family or, you know, something of that nature. Um, it's pretty likely that it's, you know, that it, that it was transmitted inside the workplace. Um, but if you determine not work-related, it's advisable to document why you made that decision. And it could be something as simple as, you know, we took a look at it and the six workers were known to um, play basketball together outside of work, or we know all six workers recently attended the same um, wedding or some kind of event. Uh, so we believe it was not transmitted in the workplace, that sort of thing. Uh, but there are certainly a lot um, that we have to look at when it comes to recording. And then as for reporting, hospitalizations or deaths due to COVID-19. So here we're talking about, you know, when you have to call OSHA within um, 24 hours, let them know that a hospitalization occurred or um, eight hours if a uh, fatality occurred related to COVID-19. So again, you got to use the same criteria to determine if it's work-related. So that's the same test we just talked about but you only have to report work-related cases if the hospitalization occurred within 24 hours of the exposure incident or if the fatality occurred within 30 days of the incident. So let's just say a worker has some symptoms of COVID-19 and you believe it was due to exposure in the workplace. Uh, the employee is sent home and quarantined for three days. Then symptoms get worse and the employee has to be hospitalized. In this case, you wouldn't have to report the hospitalization to OSHA because the exposure was more than 24 hours from the time of hospitalization. Now you'd still have to record it on your OSHA logs if there was a confirmed uh, positive test, but you wouldn't have to notify OSHA immediately. As for notifying other employees of exposures, currently OSHA does not require employers to do this. Um, however, employers must take appropriate steps uh, to protect other workers from exposure to that virus, and that certainly might include um, specific actions uh, resulting from a confirmed case like cleaning and disinfecting, notifying other workers to monitor themselves, um, or implementing a screening program in the workplace. You'd want to uh, certainly, you know, maintain privacy, uh, but you are allowed under OSHA to um, to make such notifications. And the state plans that we talked about earlier, for example, California and Virginia, both require this type of notification under their state standards. So federal OSHA doesn't require it, they allow it, uh, but the state standards are leaning that direction to where uh, they, they require that you notify everyone who could have potentially been exposed of the, um, the exposure. Again, maintaining privacy. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Dolly to kind of look at um, more of the um, HR uh, legal type uh, employment law aspects of this, um, of this pandemic. Thanks, Travis. And you might be surprised at how much of the legality, the employment laws actually kind of come down to the whole safety thing. But let's get started on that. So many employees have returned to work and they probably know your safety drill. Many still, however, are working from home. In time, those working from home may return to the physical workplace at some point, maybe. And the drill may include the, the all now very usual, usual safety protocols, as Travis talked about, screening, testing, masks, physical distance, hand washing, the three W's, wash your hands, wear a mask, Watch your distance. And these are directly tied to keeping your workplace safe. For those employees who have not yet returned to work, however, they're gonna to need to be informed of what to expect when they do. This is because you want returning employees to know what to expect so there are no unwanted surprises. We've had enough of those. It doesn't hurt to communicate clearly on what they will see, what they will hear, what they will feel when they do return. Will they enter through the same door as usual or will they need to use a particular door to help with screenings? 
Will they need to bring their own masks? What will happen if they develop symptoms while at work? What type of screening will they be subject to and when and where? Will meeting rooms be closed? What about lunch or break rooms? All employees will benefit from knowing when they are to stay home and when they may return to work after a quarantine or isolation. And again, the CDC has guidelines on this and they have changed and they may continue to change as to when employees can return to work after exposure. But including this type of information on the company intranet can help, but not all employees may be aware of the intranet or may not have looked at that site in a while. So you might wanna look at how you are communicating with these employees. Having COVID-19 related policies can help you should an issue arise. If for example, let's say we have Emma employee and she indicates that she does not wanna wear a mask because she believes they are not effective. Well, then you can return to your masking policy that does require all employees to wear them except in certain circumstances, such as under reasonable accommodations. And that way, if Emma continues to not mask up, you can treat the situation as you would any company policy violation. If she asks not to wear a mask because of a medical condition or a religious belief, on the other hand, then your policy could indicate that employees are to contact HR for more information or whoever your company has in place for that. Policies could also cover screening and testing and the other safety protocols. And remember, you may screen employees and applicants to see if they have the virus, but you may not screen them to see if they had the virus. Your COVID-19 related leave policies might want to steer clear of mandating a doctor's note to return to work, particularly in areas that are hard hit because doctors might not be readily available to provide those notes. And remote workers should at least be reminded of your security policies, which may need to be reviewed and updated. If your company is considering things like layoffs, furloughs and pay cuts, hopefully not, but if they do, you might wanna review any related policies and perhaps craft a new one specifically related to the virus. Now, if your employees travel for work, you might wanna provide them with information related to travel, particularly to and from hotspots. And these are just some consideration. Your particular policies need to reflect the details of your organization. And Travis talked about screening and testing, and many of you may be doing that, doing that all to help keep the virus out of the workplace, and that's fine. It continues to be fine as long as this virus is a pandemic. When it is downloaded from being a pandemic, and that's a when, not an if, then you may no longer screen all employees. This is because the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, restricts this only to when you have a reasonable belief based on objective evidence that a particular employee, as opposed to all employees, is unable to perform the job's essential functions because of a medical condition, or that employee will pose a direct threat because of a medical condition. And because the virus is a pandemic, that direct threat defense applies. Now you've likely figured out the method you, you're going to you use to screen, whether it's a questionnaire that employees complete and affirm before they come to work or actions like temperature screens before they're entering the facility. Now with the latter, the temperature screenings, if employees have to wait in line, you might have pay issues. If they have to wait outside, inclement weather will pose other issues. You all probably know by now that if an employee has symptoms or tests positive, they're leave the workplace and get them out of there. You may require that employees who do test positive have a negative test before returning to work. But it's a big caveat. Keep in mind that people can test positive for up to 12 weeks as the body sheds the virus. They're no longer contagious for that long, but they still have the virus in them. It's no longer just re replicating. And this is one reason the CDC has moved from a test-based method to a symptom-based method for determining when people can be around others basically when employees can return to work. So if they tested positive and had symptoms, they may return to work 10 days since symptoms first appeared and 24 hours with no fever or the, without the use of any medications and other symptoms are improving. If they tested positive, but had no symptoms and continue to have no symptoms, they may return to work 10 days after 10 days have passed since they had the positive test. 
Now, if you require employees you reasonably believe will pose a direct threat to be examined by a healthcare professional of your choice, then you must pay all costs associated with that visit. Otherwise, health plans must cover most COVID-19 testing without cost sharing, you know, those deductibles, co-pays, co-insurance, things like that. And that is when the testing is ordered by a medical provider for diagnostic purposes. And as we touched upon, if an employee requests a workplace change, including an exception to a workplace policy, and that's due to a medical condition, this is generally a request for an accommodation under the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA. This also triggers your obligation to engage in an interactive process with the employee with a focus on identifying an effective, reasonable accommodation. If Emma employee, for example, asks for a max, mask exception, talk to her and find out why she wants the exception. If she cites a medical condition and that condition is not obvious, then you may ask for reasonable documentation of the condition and the limitation regarding the mask wearing. Employees may have underlying conditions making them more susceptible to serious complications if infected, and they may also ask for an accommodation. If so, you need to consider it. Now you need not provide a particular accommodation requested, but you generally need to provide one that is effective. The universe of accommodations is vast and limited only by your imagination. Maybe Emma can work from home. Maybe she can work in a different part of the building. You need not provide an accommodation that would pose an undue hardship, but this is a somewhat challenging threshold to meet. It's basically a significant difficulty or expense that focuses on the resources and circumstances of your particular organization in relation to the cost or difficulty of providing a particular accommodation. Now, undue hardship refers not only to financial difficulty, but also to accommodations that are unduly extensive, substantial, or disruptive, or those that would fundamentally alter the nature or operation of the business. You have to assess on a case-by-case -case basis whether a particular accommodation would cause undue hardship. The ADA is nothing if not a law of gray areas. Now, if Emma is asking for an exception because of a sincerely held religious belief, you need to consider this request under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, but the hardship threshold for a religious accommodation is much lower. A religious accommodation may cause undue hardship if it is costly, compromises work safe, workplace safety, decreases workplace efficiency, infringes on the rights of other employees, or requires other employees to do more than their share of potentially hazardous or burdensome work. It's more of a de minimis argument. Now, let's talk about everybody's favorite recent topic, the vaccines. COVID vaccines are out and about, they're being distributed, and they will likely help us win this battle, but only if enough people get it. So you may be wondering if you can actually mandate that all your employees get the vaccine. Well, you likely have the legal right to require employees to obtain that vaccine as a condition of employment with a whole lot of caveats and considerations. A better question might be, should you mandate that they get the vaccine? Well, one of the caveats falls under the ADA. You can't go really far into any employment law without touching the ADA. If an employee has a serious health, or a health condition that prevents him from getting the vaccine, then you have to allow for an exception or identify another reasonable accommodation barring that undue hardship. Similarly, if you receive notice that an employee's sincerely held religious belief, practice, or observance prevents him from getting the vaccine, again, you have to provide a reasonable accommodation unless it would pose a Title VII undue hardship. So you can do it. And then also you got to think of things like workers' compensation. The um, negative reactions from the vaccine are rare and um, they're not happening very often. But what if you mandate it, an employee gets it, and the employee has a severe reaction to it. Well, now you're looking at a workers' comp potential claim. So there are all kinds of um, situations that you kind of have to think about, including employee morale. Because a lot of people just don't want to get it. Um, so maybe encouraging it instead of mandating it might be better for your company. 
Okay, let's talk a little bit more about this employee travel. You generally have some control over work travel, but you might not have as much control over personal travel. You can, however, have some. Let's talk about that. If your employees have been traveling for work and have not run into any issues and have not increased your risk of having the virus enter the workplace, because, well, no workplace is totally risk-free, then you may feel free to carry on. If you have employees who are planning to travel for personal reasons, there are some steps you may take. You may, for example, require employees to inform you of their personal travel plans, particularly if those plans involve hotspots. This provision should be applied consistently and shouldn't be business related. You would need to regularly check on what those hotspots are, of course, as they continue to change. If employees do travel to certain areas, they may need to quarantine for 14 days upon arrival, both for, to their destination as well as their return home. The travel need not be by plane, but you have to also consider buses and other methods of transportations, because those also have risks. So you have to check not only the state laws, but also city laws. So doing that yeah, puts a little burden on you. Without state or city quarantine requirements related to travel, however, you may allow employees to quarantine for up to 14 days upon their return. And this is where your flexibility regarding time off can be important. You may also ask all employees returning to work for any reason to complete a questionnaire, including about their travel. Have they traveled to a hotspot? Might be a question you put on their um, screenings. Now, this is my, my favorite employment law because everybody needs a favorite employment law, the Family and Medical Leave Act. If an employee or an employee's family member contracts the virus, the employee may be entitled to unpaid job protected leave under the Family Medical Leave Act, the FMLA. Testing positive may be enough if the doctor indicates that the employee is unable to work due to the condition. If the employee or family member has a serious health condition, and yes, COVID-19 can be a serious health condition, that leave would also be FMLA leave protected. In those situations, you have to carefully review the certification that supports the need for leave to see what it specifically indicates. Why does all this matter? Well, as of um, just this morning, over 1,300 COVID-related employment complaints have been filed, and that's since mid-March. Most of them, some, many of them are class actions. And leading the pack are claims related to disability and leave. People are understandably still concerned about the virus, particularly if their health is already compromised. They may ask for considerations, including leave, due to their conditions. And most of the class action claims fall under the wage and hour provisions, the Fair Labor Standards Act. Other claims are coming in under other provisions listed here on this slide. Some suits are also related to employee deaths from COVID, some of them under OSHA, for not following those CDC and OSHA guidelines. Therefore, while we have only guidelines from these agencies, they're not federal mandates, they're not standards, people are still suing companies who don't follow those guidelines. And such claims can be very expensive. Now, to help stem the continuing negative economic impact of the virus, some states have proposed laws that would help protect employers if they took certain steps. And again, think safety protocols. And on the federal level, uh, bill, if you're interested, it's Senate 4317 was introduced in Congress. This is known as the Safeguarding America's Frontline Employees to Offer Work Opportunities Required to Kickstart the Economy Act. Wow. Otherwise known as the Safe to Work Act. The government cannot function without acronyms. But this bill would provide a safe harbor for employers under these laws listed here. Interestingly enough, the FMLA is not included in this bill. The bill was introduced way back in July and it's still in committee. Uh, Congress is a little busy right now. And if you remember this one law that was put into place last year, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, it allowed for, it actually mandated that employers provide paid leave for certain reasons that related to the virus. That law expired in on December 31st of last year at midnight, but employers may choose to voluntarily continue to provide such paid leave 
and get the, um, the tax credits for providing that paid leave. Why is this important? Well, let's look at that. Like I said, it expired. You may continue to voluntarily leave and take the tax credits. If you think about the safety provisions, one of the things the FFCRA did was it, 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 it lowered the risk of the virus getting into the workplace because employees were paid to stay away, basically. If you got it, or your family member has it or something like that, don't even come to the workplace, workplace, we'll pay you and stay away. So that can help. And a lot of people are also thinking that with a new administration, a new paid leave law might be enacted and they may take the FFCRA as the basis and make it retroactive. So, but you don't have to provide the paid leave anymore, but you may do so. Again, would OSHA or somebody take a look at this and say, well, did you take all the safety protocols you could have to keep the virus out of the workplace and to keep your workplace safe. So under the current normal, you still need to remain vigilant to keep your companies healthy and strong. That means keeping your employees safe and making sure you're doing, dotting all your I's and crossing all your T's when it comes to those employment laws. There are a lot of moving parts to running a company and the legal environment may have never posed as many risks. Talking to your employees openly and honestly and allowing them to provide input can help ease tensions and fears and may even help diffuse political litigation. Talk to them often about steps you have taken and how you're staying on top of developments in order to continue keeping them safe. And the steps you are take are based on health guidelines and nothing else. Communicate in a variety of methods, email, internet, forums, <laughs> snail mail, whatever works. Allow them to ask questions and then you can provide those honest answers. You may not have all the answers, but you can share what you do know. And basically you're allowing employees to be human. Thank you, Dolly. Um, before we move into our Q&A session, uh, I'd like to offer our audience another opportunity to request more information on the solutions we have to help keep your employees and workplace safe. If you missed the opportunity earlier in the event or joined us late, use the poll on your screen to let us know your areas of interest. We'll also email you a copy of our white paper, Return to Work, Are You Prepared When COVID-19 Tags Along? Make your selection to the poll. We'll have that emailed out within a few business days. JJ Keller, is your reliable source for help protecting employees and reducing the risk. And now we can take questions, right? Somebody asked the question. Is Yes, we can. Is, uh, first, I wanna thank you both for this fantastic and insightful presentation. And before we start the q and I wanna remind everyone about an evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey will open up in a different screen after this webinar. And again, your input is important because it'll help us improve our future webcast. And now it's time for some questions and we have quite a few questions. So thank you everyone for that. Uh, the first one is how strict do we have to be in enforcement with construction crews on face masks when, they are, when they're not in common areas? Um, I can, uh, I can take a, take a stab at that one. I mean, you're not going to find, you know, any, any solid rules that are going to say, you know, in this situation, you can let them take the masks off. Uh, if they're, you know, seven feet away, you can take the mask off. I think, um, the expectation is, you know, you wear the masks, um, in, in pretty much all instances where there's potential exposure uh, to someone else within, certainly within uh, six feet. But I think generally, unless it is a very remote possibility, you know, the worker's the only person up on a, a roof, for example, um, you know, maybe that, that would be one of the instances where you can, you can remove, remove the mask. So I think it's ultimately the employer is kind of going to have to figure it out based on, uh, you know, the specifics of, of the work sites that, you know, construction sites, they're all different. 
as far as how many other contractors are around. Uh, so you're going to kind of have to look and, and just sort of use, just come up with some some general rules that work. I think I don't I, I don't believe it's possible to say you know at 13 feet you can take it off. Um, really, it's just a matter of making sure you are far enough away and whatever you're doing, there's no good likelihood that you're going to be exposed to, you know, someone else. Then I think that's that's when you would would take it off, certainly in outdoor environments. For our next question, I'm, I'm sure this is going to be a very popular question, but uh, do you anticipate uh, an emergency temporary standard from OSHA on COVID-19 will be issued um, within the, I guess, the first couple months of the uh, Biden administration? Yeah, um, so a couple things on that one. Uh, the Biden administration, they did form their uh, overall COVID-19 pandemic task force. And one of the uh, three main leaders of that group is the former head of OSHA under the Obama administration, David Michaels. Um, so he has advocated strongly for a standard, an OSHA standard. Um, and then just last month uh, on the 50th anniversary of the OSHA Act signing, um, the Biden administration actually did put out a, uh, a statement which said that um, they plan to direct OSHA to review whether an emergency temporary standard is needed. So, um, you know, my gut feeling is that they probably resources, you know, pending probably will uh, go that direction. Um, you can't say with certainty that they will, but I believe uh, the, the thought process is that if you can curb the transmission in the workplace, it will go a long way to helping curb the overall uh, spread of the virus. So I think that's one of the drivers of it. So um, yeah, I do, I do believe that that will be the direction now, whether that will be, you know, early February or, you know, it's hard to say, but I, I, I think the, certainly at this point, they're leaning that direction. Our, our next question, does the travel quarantine get waived if someone has a proof of vaccination? Take that one. Um, that depends upon the law, the state law. Some states are saying because the vaccinations still are not on everybody. It's mostly healthcare workers and things like that. Um, so that remains to be seen what the state laws have come up with. There's no federal law on that. But um, so, so wait and see. We don't have the answer to that one. Some states are thinking, say, saying, okay, if you have uh, both shots, maybe. So another question, once employees receive a vaccination, can ERs and other places require proof of vaccination? What I've read, yes. Um, you can ask them to show, yes, you've been vaccinated. Particularly helpful to make sure that they have both vaccines. We're talking Pfizer and Moderna. Um, of course, future vaccines may only have one dose. Um, but you can ask that. What you can't do is ask whether they have had the disease because even if you've had it, it does not guarantee that you can't get it again. And that's a medical question that's still prohibited by the ADA. But yeah, from what I've read, um, you can ask, yes, whether or not for evidence that the employees have been vaccinated. I mean, I don't know if employees will actually have this documentation, but they might. So our next question, um, see people are contagious, but asymptomatic for two days. Is it actually feasible to be hospitalized within 24 hours of exposure? Uh, I'll take a stab at that one. Um, you know, it's very unlikely. Um, I, I, um, I think the chances of that happening are fairly slim. But OSHA still, you know, it's still within the realm of possibility, I suppose, um, that OSHA, that it could meet the OSHA requirement. But yeah, very, 
it's probably going to be more often than not that um, you know someone who's asymptomatic um, probably we would not end up having to report that to OSHA. So um, I think that's one of the uh, one of those things that a lot of labor um, folks are upset with uh, with OSHA is the way they've handled both reporting and the recordability aspect of it, just because it is it is a pretty remote um, probability that from the, the onset of illness um, to the time of hospitalization would be within 24 hours. So yeah, that's a, unfortunately that is the way it is though, or fortunately, I guess for employers and in a lot of ways. So on OSHA logs, do you track, um, hold on one second. So on your OSHA logs, do you track lost time from the time the person either became ill or was quarantined slash isolated, or is it lost time tracking based upon the uh, positive test result? Okay, so with this one, you know, certainly the first part of it is, you know, you wanna make sure that the person has actually tested positive for COVID-19. So that kind of kicks off the, the recording process and you've determined it's work-related. Um, and so on. So then when you get to cases where an employer directs employees to self-isolate or quarantine or they have to quarantine, what we've been told by OSHA is they suggest counting the calendar days on the first day of being told uh, to self-isolate or quarantine. So not necessarily um, you know, the day of the illness or symptoms, but the day the day of, of being told to self-isolate and quarantine is when you would uh, typically start counting those days. But admittedly, all of that gets a little tricky too. But um, I think, uh, you know, you do, you do the best you can with those and document why you made your decisions. You're probably going to be okay. Uh, but yeah, what we've been told by OSHA, and again, they haven't really been forthcoming as far as posting this part of it in guidance, but uh, We've had some conversations and they have said, again, suggest uh, counting the calendar days on the first day uh, of being told to self-isolate or quarantine. Our next question, uh, do you recommend air purifiers, you know, such as carbon or HEPA filters in closed spaces, such as, you know, conference rooms, shared office space or, or break rooms, et cetera? Uh, you know, I think, uh, I think OSHA expects that, you know, you want to look at the makeup of each of each of your spaces and, um, you know, the, how many people are going to be in there. Try to minimize that as a first um, kind of a first line of defense. But then you look at, you know, your current ventilation rates and uh, air exchanges and, um, you know, anything you can do to increase that. Obviously, that's going to be, you know, that's 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 preferred. Um, now, whether that means you have to go expensive routes and upgrade your entire ventilation system, probably not. But uh, yeah, things like, um, you know, using fans strategically placed to point outward, uh, windows open, um, different types of air um, purifier type things. But you always want to check with the manufacturer of those types of devices to make sure that, you know, they are actually suited to to do what you think they're going to do. But um, yeah, there's, there's a really good guidance actually from OSHA. If you, um, if you go to their main coronavirus page, one of the more recent ones is a ventilation guidance for return to work. Um, so if you take a look at that, it'll basically give you the OSHA guidance as to what they think are good ideas uh, to do. The other thing you can do is check with the, um, American Industrial Hygiene Association. They've got some really good guidance as far as um, ventilation and, and that aspect of it as well. But uh, yeah, the more you can do, the better. Uh, but you know, you kind of have to look at each individual space and how it's being used to determine you know, what, what benefit you would gain from the various uh, you know, enhancements that you can make. Well, thank you, everyone. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry that we didn't get to everyone's questions, but unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor.
Again, we also hope you take the time to share your feedback through your, our survey. This ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank Dolly Claybo, Travis Roden, our sponsor, JJ Keller, and of course, everyone who joined us today. Take care and be safe.